Hello and welcome to the Wolf Den Podcast, your home for competitive Digimon TCG discussion and news. I'm your host, Nako, joined by my co-host, Zenitsu. This week, we will be discussing the year 2022 in the Digimon TCG and our experiences with the card game this year. Listen to us on your favorite podcasting networks, available now on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. Link in the description below or find us at Wolf Den Digimon TCG. On top of that, we also go live over on twitch.tv slash Zenitsu, and this also gets uploaded as a YouTube video under the YouTube channel of Zenitsu. For our viewer question of the week, this week's question is, what was your favorite set for the year 2022? Uh, so leading the charge on this one, I think my favorite set probably is BT-8. Uh, even though, like, BT-8 power-wise wasn't the most exciting set, I think it was definitely one of the most flavorful main sets that we had. Um, just the introduction of Mastimon and Imperial and the DNA mechanic uh, done properly this time uh, was definitely a huge win on top of a lot of people really like O2. Uh, which is season two of Digimon featuring new cast of characters compared to the original season. Uh, we saw a lot of that flavor mixed into the set as well. And I thought it was just an absolute home run of a set in terms of everything that I want outside of the fact that the secret rares weren't like super spicy. Yeah, I'd have to agree. BT-8 was probably my favorite set of the year, especially because it introduced a lot of mechanics that we've seen expanded upon not necessarily in the way of like keywords like jogress but in the idea of true two-color digimon what it means to have two-color digimon not just you know old mastamon or uh, old imperial german and they could like they were one color digimon that could digivolve off of multicolor digimon or or multi-colors of Digimon, but now we have true blue, two colors split down the middle, and what that means for the card game and establishing archetypes that support those two-color pairings. Um, I mean, I don't imagine it's as impactful, but I know one of the most like fondly remembered magic sets was Ravnica, because their two-color pairings were so iconic, and it really brought a lot and what it kind of redefined what it means to be a deck when you can include more than one color. I definitely would agree with that sentiment. Uh, I almost forgot that two colors came out in that set. Um, mm -hmm. As I mentioned, DNA. Um, but regardless, it was just, I just felt like it was a very good turning point for the game, especially coming off of the, oh, the, the power crept uh, BT seven uh, that we all remember so fondly. Um, so I definitely think it was just a very good, uh, refresh for the game. It came out at a pretty good time. Um, I think the format was a little bit short, but that's okay. Cause EX2 didn't really seem to do much mm -hmm. and of anything. Uh, and to this day, Imperial and Mastimon are still very played decks that both spurred from that mm -hmm. set and a starter deck. Yeah. Imperial German, I know was pretty strong at the time. Mastamon kind of failed to find footing, but it like it looks as though with additional support, maybe just 
support some updated support in the form of replacing some of its older pieces with more dedicated pieces uh, will really bring the deck in a new direction moving forward, looking at BT-11. Um, but BT-8 as a whole, I think, was just a breath of fresh air to kind of save the card game from teetering off the edge because BT-7 kind of put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths with all the hybrids running around and how you couldn't interact with the tamers so you couldn't stop the hybrid lethals and all the shenanigans that ensued but it really kind of realigned you know the bus that was digimon and can we're still on that road today yep and on top of that we got one of the most important cards in the whole game which is hero uh which literally was the hero for a lot of people because uh, Ty was, like, literally the only good red generic memory-fixing tamer, and now we got actual good other options. So it was it was just a solid, solid set in, as a whole. So we wanted to do this episode as kind of like a, a break from the usual competitive stuff and just kind of say Happy New Year and really look at the last year of Digimon uh, very few card games get to say that they have a year in review that isn't done just acknowledging that the card game no longer exists. So the fact that we get to do a you know, 2022 year in review is pretty cool, and hopefully we'll be here next year for the 2023 year in review. Yep, and uh, just as a big disclaimer, this is covering the year starting from January 1st, the competitive season is on a slightly shifted uh, timeline. So we're going to have a more competitive season one, more towards uh, the end of the actual competitive season, which is uh, what me and Nako kind of agreed on, nationals to nationals. Um, so we are still technically in the 2020 season, but we do have just general thoughts about uh 2022 as a whole not necessarily focused on the competitive aspect yeah this is more to be the uh just the fun what did you play this year what did you think was cool what did you like that came out this year and what are you excited about coming out next year right like this isn't the you know statistical analysis that the end of competitive season might be or like drawing hard uh like number lines this is more of like a a feel good you know we all enjoy the game and talk about how much we like playing the game pretty much uh so with that out of the way um january uh we were technically still in ex1 yeah uh, it's no surprise I'm a blue player. Uh, I just really like the mechanics of blue. I was playing Gabu Bond, um, and that deck did me pretty well. Um, not as well as <laughs> Rookie Rush, uh, but that was the year prior. Um, and I definitely think, like, we kind of saw a big direction on where the game was going with what ex1 kind of brought to the table and the decks that were being played and represented um and i kind of just stayed a blue player uh basically throughout the whole year um going into bt7 i was unfortunately that guy who played blue hybrids um and then 
going into BT8, I played Imperial. That was a pretty easy shift. Uh, I like the multi-attacking shenanigans more than just the sit-and-wait kind of a game. So Blue Hybrids kind of bored me. Even though it was good, I was pretty solid on the deck. I was just bored. Um, and then EX2 just, again, continued to play Imperial. Then BT9, I really struggled to figure out what I wanted to play. Uh, the answer should have just been Metal Guru, but I was kind of flip-flopping between like, oh, do I still want to try Imperial out? Do I want to try Armor Rush uh, because of Magnemon X? Uh, and going back to like the more Rookie Rush style things? Or do I just want to uh, go Melga? And uh, eventually Melga won my heart. And uh, once I actually started playing the deck and understanding it more and more, it kind of just won my heart even more. Um, just because it was playing like my creative deck from BT5 using Ancient Garurumon shenanigans. Uh, except this was just more powerful and easier and more consistent. And then I kind of just stayed on Melga through the different formats. I wanted to try Cross Hearts just because, again, I liked the Rookie Rush aspect of what Cross Hearts offered. But unfortunately, uh, my opportunity was kneecapped and taken away from me. Thanks, Bandai. Um, I don't and... want to interrupt your speed run of the entire year 2022, but we, we were going to talk about, like, I was just going to go in order, not necessarily all the decks I played, just one in a, at a time. Oh, well, Oops. so yeah, no, it's fine. Um, we didn't do a lot of uh, but that's fine. Uh, because we'll get there and you'll just be able to reiterate what you want to talk about, maybe even the more detail. But you could have your what shot. I was, well, what I was going to talk about, and I think something that um, people fail to recognize is something that we got this year that was actually pretty landmark, wasn't even a major release, it was just the first ban restriction announcement. Like, beyond the, the first first, the one that kind of didn't matter because it came out right when the card game came out, but this was the actual, like, first true balance patch. Oh, yeah, with uh, HPD. MDF. Or, HP, yeah, Meg, or not, Mega, yeah, Mega Digimon Fusion, sorry. MDF, uh, Ice Wall. Um, and, and remember, it, it even announced, like, the, the stages, ones. you know? And that came out, like... January 7th, January 8th. It was like really early in the year. But I don't it got announced. The exact date, but yeah. It got announced before Nats. And the, um, in just how that changed the, like, cause I mean, I remember at the time there was a, a YouTuber who basically announced they're leaving competitive Digimon and these are all the problems with it. And then like two weeks later, the cards that they were complaining about got banned and they had to like, I don't even remember what they ended up doing. Either if they walked back and they just came back to the card game, or if they just kept playing Yu-Gi-Oh, which I think they were going to swap to. But that's oh boy, that's a mistake. <laughs> yeah, but so yeah, I think that was like the first highlight is that something that that major happened that early on in the year, technically last competitive season still, and but that has shaped and now defined what we understand as that Bandai can and will affect cards if they feel like they're overpowered and beyond that one time because before it had it only happened once so we weren't sure if it was ever going to happen again even though everyone kind of talked about it and there were things people wanted to get restricted or whatever and it was the first time bandai actually kind of stepped up and said okay this is going to become a kind of regular thing and then 
we weren't sure if it was going to be a yearly thing and now we kind of feel like maybe it's a like every six months every half a year kind of thing based on the one we had later in the uh like the end of summer uh, I mean, the surprise announcement uh, with the influence of uh, hitting cross hearts definitely uh, kind of shook things up a little bit more than I anticipated. It was just like, okay, we were waiting for the second half because they said they were going to do like the second half. And then we didn't know when or where it was uh, because that was when yeah. in BT9 uh, they announced the limitation that was going to be for... Um, the hybrids, yellow and mm-hmm. blue hybrids, respectively. Yep, and th- those that change they by their wording they made because of the American meta specifically, the North American meta. Uh, yellow hybrids, I think, wasn't. Uh, I don't, like the way they worded it. I don't believe it was purely the American meta. Um, no, because... yeah, yellow hybrids was a problem for them too. Once oh, one hundred percent. Like fast and easy Venus mon. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. yeah venus control huge problem but um yeah i don't think blue hybrids was ever enough of a problem for them to warrant tommy getting hit um it i was think really it kind was kind of like a mid deck at best i think it was more just the design space uh and it's Maybe, the yeah. same it's the same type of problematic design space that um death x kind of occupies where it's just like mm-hmm. it's meta reliance and just its sheer existence reduces the amount of design space that they have, uh, which is really baffling on why they created Death X the way it is. But regardless, that's a different story. Um, but Tommy, just his existence and how Blue Hybrids plays because there's like very limited Tamer interaction is just a huge threat to anything that just wants to go wide. It just makes Blue Hybrids the best deck, period. Like, I'm honest to god think that if uh bt9 wasn't as power corrupt as it was to be faster than blue hybrids and change the game to be a raising meta i still think blue hybrids would have been the best deck in the format yeah potentially um so bt6 ex1 i was playing black blockers slash anti-meta black uh a deck by no true a creation it wasn't really an established list and it definitely wasn't a very good deck but i maintain that it did one thing and one thing alone which is good enough for me is that it momentarily killed the existence of security control at my local meta because the only deck it beat was security control i don't care if i lost everybody else i beat them and that's all that mattered <laughs> is it because it, it became an auto lose round one uh prior to the existence of more like uh control heavy yellow cards and before chaos degradation and the like uh oh but okay. you you kind of blipped out for a second oh sorry but yeah so just the the deck wasn't great and it definitely wasn't very meta, but I wasn't necessarily super interested in playing meta at the time. All I did was I played it. It was fun. I went to locals and was kind of just waiting for a another deck to come out, coming off the heels of playing nothing but Lord Nightmon Mirrors for 
the existence of BT5 last the year before. So I know you kind of said you took a break in BT7. Did you play any BT7 at all? Oh yeah, I, I played. I just basically stopped playing competitively after um, it was fairly established that Blue Hybrid is the only deck that existed. And I, I played a couple, you know, I played a couple weeks of locals, played one or two large events, and it was just Blue Hybrid. It was only Blue Hybrid. And I just wasn't about it. And the BT7 iteration of Yellow Hybrid had just didn't interest me at all because it was basically security control with Tamers. And I'll never get that low. What did you play in BT7? Uh, Cherubi. I played Cherubi Hybrid. Oh, I remember. Yep. I played yellow-based Cherubi Hybrid, Cherubi Pinata, yep. with the idea that it could potentially uh, be good enough into Blue Hybrid to see some success. I saw some wins. I mean, I, I didn't lose everything, but, you know, it wasn't the Tier 1 deck that Blue Hybrid was. That is fair. Uh, what? Yep. And then you swapped over to Mastemon, or did you just stick with Yellow or Cherubi or Yellow Hybrids in BTA? I'm trying to remember your timeline. Yeah. So, um, well, just trying to like keep it within the scope of what happened at that point. Um, I it had basically been BT8 that had kept me playing through BT6, BT or EX1. BT7, just the idea of getting to BT8, and BT8 being the set that I kind of wanted it to be, and thankfully it kind of lived up to what I thought it would be. But just the entire idea of having two-color Digimon was super interesting to me. And the different control elements implemented, you know, Shivamon was a very cool card. Um, unfortunately, didn't really pan out too well as far as success. Green was still, like, pretty bad. It just had been too bad for too long to do anything any well uh black war Greymon was super cool i really i played a lot in bt8 i played a lot of different decks just because um there were so many things that interested me and so many decks that i thought were cool and that deserved to see play i get you i mean i play literally everything under the sun uh for youtube but Mm -hmm. uh i do competitively stick with usually one deck because spreading my resources too thin uh generally does not help me as a player mm -hmm. uh i get good understanding of everything but i get it yeah and i'm trying to remember the exact timeline here but um there was a good period of time where I was just kind of waiting for BT8 to come out. I knew it, like we had seen the full release in Japan and we were kind of waiting for it to come out here. And so I wasn't playing BT7 as much. I didn't play EX1 as much. But the the start of 2022's competitive season was actually pretty noteworthy, mostly because it in, it included more support and earlier support than we had last year or the year prior. Obviously the like first competitive season is the least supported and the most haphazard one because the card game had basically come out in January, February, and then they had 
fully established Bandai sponsored tournaments as early as June. But uh, because it was now one year later, this was the first time where tournaments started way earlier, all the way back in BT7 and like that, what, like March, April time frame. Yeah, I think we're going to kind of see a similar pattern where it's just like the beginning of this year, January, uh, February, just nothing really special. And then uh, everything is just in preparation towards Nats. Uh, and then they're going to go back to like their usual like couple uh, months of uh, tournaments swapping between regionals and ultimate cups. I mean, it's it's a good pace. It's a clearly established timeline of you have your, you know, your your real like window of opportunity between I want to say like June, maybe a little earlier depending on some of the events, and then um, maybe like as late as like the first week, first couple weeks of uh, November, potentially maybe one or two tournaments in December, usually not necessarily, and then like yeah that that pseudo like off season. Though it's not really off season, it's basically, it's like playoffs as as most sports understand it, right? Where anyone that's made nats is now preparing for it, and anyone that didn't gets to take a break. So, at least from a competitive understanding. So like this, these next you know two months before nats is really crunch time for anyone trying to prepare for nats or do well at nats, and anyone that didn't can chill and take a break and you know spend the holidays with their families and just enjoy other things take a little break from the card game specifically maybe yeah i do kind of after not playing like two weeks of digimon at locals i am kind of missing it a little bit but it is definitely nice to not have to worry about any of that um especially since like financially uh especially this year prepping for nats is uh, a little bit more of an expensive endeavor uh, last year, Nats was online. This year, Nats is in person. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, just plane ticket, hotel, and prepping for whatever the actual cost of the event is going to be. I think last year it was like $35 to get in. A little bit more expensive, but the prizing was definitely well worth it if you made it in. I don't know if there will technically be a prizing because, I mean, I've never attended an in-person event of this caliber but correct me if i'm wrong but they shouldn't have to mail like the 35 dollars was really just to cover shipping right like maybe not all of it but a decent portion of it was to cover shipping they had to ship you the play mat and whatever cards you received and there shouldn't even be potentially an entry fee this time just because you're already physically there what what entry fee is there for me to like for you to cover you know uh, I mean, uh, it would probably be the cost for core TCG to move downtown because literally like the venue from their shop is literally like a half hour. So it's just to cover their expense to set everything up and host the event is the only thing I could reasonably think of. But I know Bandai's also paying them, uh, and paying them well, um, just because uh, the old company that I used to work for worked with Bandai uh, before they kind of did their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I don't I don't particularly know exactly what kind of cost we're seeing. We didn't get any announcement as far as like, oh, here's how you purchase your event ticket. Like we haven't seen I any hope, of that yet. I, I imagine they're just trying not to recreate last year's uh debacle involving people without invites being able to sign up for the event and then the tickets are quote unquote sold out, even though you can't sell out of an invite only event because anyone that has an invite gets is allowed to sign up but then they only put so many like per the website it, it that was its own thing but just the idea that um they obviously kind of need the head count as far as okay who's actually going to show up and maybe there is some fee you know on top of it just to help cover but from my understanding of esports and competitive scenes amongst card games and stuff like that i mean it's it's all just advertising at the end of the day for them to say, hey, look, we have this, you know, massive uh, hall rented out for people to participate in the national finals. And they played all year to qualify for this event. And it's a large marketing thing, a huge advertising thing for them. And so usually they're kind of fronting the cost of the actually renting out the venue, actually paying Core TCG to be there. Core CTG are paying their staff to be there to judge the event and all the side events that are going to be going on for people that potentially don't do so hot and then, you know, either drop out or find something else to do while they're at the event. But because of that, like, there really shouldn't be much cost to the like player beyond getting there and um, whatever your resources are for the event as far as, you know, your hotel, your food, your... Like, that's what we're paying for, the fact that, like, last time, I think the only cost associated was mostly because, the, on the part of the player, like, they already played at all these online events, now they, but the uh, tournament organizer now needs to mail to us, you know, via shipping, uh, the prize cards that you potentially win, and the playmat, which, obviously, is, like, required a decent amount of postage. Yeah, uh, but... Regardless uh, how Nationals is going to be handled, just the the sheer difference in how Nationals is going to be handled is definitely something uh, to be excited for in this coming year. Um, so I know in kind of going back to your whole timeline, you played a lot in BT8 and mm -hmm. EX2. Um, what, what, uh, I know you had got your invite with uh, D-Reapers in BT9. EX2 technically, yeah, but um, no, oh no, BT9, you're right, after EX2. Yeah, because um, BT9 was like big uh, national season. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I... It was uh, uh, invite season, my bad. Yep, yeah, just I had gone to a... I had signed up for a couple store champs with the intent of trying to get my invite because I hadn't been as successful in online events, and it was just after I had uh, kind of balked at uh d reaper and its success and it but it was something i wanted to play earlier and thought was going to be better earlier and then it didn't and we moved on and then it started to do well and we i remember i was like why now why not last set the cards are better now why would the card why would the deck be better now and not better then and I had I just took it to a locals, 
and I played with it myself. And I mean, I just, I had plenty of EX2 laying around. I just threw the deck together. I like the concept of D Reaper. I like the idea of, I mean, not that it plays the same, but the like pseudo conceptualization of it being the, uh, the colorless deck, the Eldrazi kind of mindset without being mechanically similar to Eldrazi at all from Magic the Gathering. But um, the idea that they weren't even Digimon, the fact that they broke a lot of the rules as far as they are immune to level-based deletion because they don't have levels, the fact that they became just exceedingly powerful on their turn on your turn because they got the additional 1k dp per source underneath the mother and then became just normal like rookie dp level digimon on your opponent's turn they could just swing over with whatever but the idea of like having this alternate win condition also in the form of reaper was pretty interesting and i just happened to see success with it and i won a couple tough matches um and in the environment that my locals has been with some of the more competitive players being here just in a weird uh microcosm of competitive card games where i mean uh it's it's something that my friend and i still joke about is that like the guy that owns one of the local card stores is still has his own wikipedia page for being like i think the three or four year in a row Yu-Gi-Oh world champion like in some random town in Connecticut. Uh I don't I don't think one of my uh Yu-Gi-Oh championship guys has uh his ego that big. Um doesn't have a Wikipedia page, doesn't have a deck named after him. Uh I mean, <laughs> I don't know if he does. Like does does Jeff Jones actually have a deck named after him? I don't play Yu-Gi-Oh, I wouldn't know. Uh neither do I. I just know him right. just because I used to work with him, and like I know for a fact he's a big Yu-Gi-Oh guy. Uh, yeah, this is like a while ago too, like because he was in high school when I started playing, which was like 2013, 2012, and he just won the Yu-Gi-Oh Nationals or Yu-Gi-Oh World Championship that year, like the English version. I don't know if there was ever any crossover with the Japanese version, but um just huge huge into Yu-Gi-Oh and him and a couple of his friends were they just kind of raised the power level of Yu-Gi-Oh and it kind of bled over into other card games that were played locally and so my locals has always been very competitive for Digimon and I have only won locals a handful of times one of them just happened to be a store championship and gave me the invite yeah and then um what uh, I'm trying to remember what exactly you played in uh, BT10 slash EX3. I know you wanted to play Eximon. Um, didn't you take like another break during BT10? I mean, it was three weeks long. I don't really know how much it would be considered a break. But yeah, I'm here less to talk about the decks I played personally, just more about like the game in general. Um, it's kind of the feel of it, right? Like, so the competitive season started in like the march april time frame the starter decks came out and that was kind of huge because um we had that one event where starter decks weren't legal um well, yeah. not to scoff at canada <laughs> or anything having distribution issues uh my heart goes out to um 
anyone who's impacted by distribution issues because um, it's always not fun. Um, but yeah, that was like the big debacle in BTA was like, oh, um, it it had some starter deck uh, distribution issues. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the fact that we have starter decks become tier one decks, meta defining decks upon release? I actually kind of like it, to be honest. It lowers... that was a change, right? Like that yeah. was a twenty twenty two thing. The the the, comp- the you needed to get starter decks the year before just because they contained cards that were staples of those colors that you needed to play those colors in those decks, but. This was the first time we saw whole engines being built in starter decks and then expanded upon in sets as opposed to the other way around or just not at all. Yeah, because in EX1 slash BT6 era the year before, we had uh, the Gallantmon starter deck kind of start or or attempt to start that trend, uh, but Mm -hmm. it lacked the support at the time needed for it to actually do anything. uh, Mm -hmm. And compared to Imperial, where it's just like, here's the starter deck and in the set that's just releasing along with it, here's literally all of the support that you need, or the vast majority of support, because they were using some EX1 cards and some of the older tech, but the majority of the cards came from the new stuff, and that was pretty... That felt pretty good. Um, Not only just from my perspective, but uh, I saw at my locals, just people were just like, oh, how do... I just pick this up and then just get a couple of extra stuff and I'm good to go. And I was just like, yep, that is it. And they were like, wow, that's so much different than uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! didn't start at that time, but uh, Dragon Ball was the other big uh, card game at that time um, for my locals. They were like, wow, that's a huge difference compared to Dragon Ball. And Dragon Ball is really archetype heavy. Um, Dragon Ball kind of actually is more like Yu-Gi-Oh! But they're both archetype heavy games. So uh, people were still pretty happy about just the ease of access due to that. And I think that really helped the game's growth. I really didn't like what they did with the Jessmon and Ragna Lordmon starter decks. Um, Having two separate product lines for basically the same product, that felt kind of silly to me. It's like, just why? Like, I didn't really see the need for it. Having this premium edition... Uh, that comes with both decks, but doesn't come with the uh, Tamer reprints, which I personally value the Tamer reprints in terms of the accessibility of entering the game more than the option reprints and the sleeves that mm-hmm. the premium came with. So I felt like they did good, and then they did bad. So I was like, yeah. whatever. Yeah, it was just um, it was a definite change to have these starter decks come out and uh hey i want to play tier one deck uh pick up two copies of the starter deck and oh by the way like not that that was anything new because that had always been the same but you needed two copies of it because the best card the most sought after card the most expensive card if you tried to buy it singles is the one that there's only two of yeah and usually it literally covers the entire deck's price Mm -hmm. yeah and then you just had extra copies of the other cards to hand out um but uh, that happened, and then you know EBTA came out. Obviously, we we went over what we played for those events. But EX two, just... yeah, EX two was definitely a big shift compared to EX one. Uh, mm-hmm. I liked EX 2's design because, uh, like you said, with D Reapers, it was kind of its own thing, and it was 
pretty self-included inside of EX2. It was like literally the first set where you just buy it and then you just get enough parts and pieces to actually put together a deck. And that deck was D-Reapers. Uh, it had mm-hmm. some cool cores and engines for other decks. Gallimon got some support. Beelzemon got some support. Um, but in terms of the design of the set, I definitely felt like it was a better made product than their first attempt with EX1. But EX1 was just trying to be a nod and a callback while adding a couple of good support cards here and there. Um, but it feels like with these EX sets, they're trying to go for like one meta playable deck and then everything else is just kind of in the for funsies territory. I mean, just like, just, you know, talking about stuff that changed with each set too, EX2 also changed the ratios for uh, alt arts and supers which we maintain today now just because like again just 2022 as a a whole was okay what did we do in 2021 how did it not work or what did we do differently like it was brand new a lot of stuff like was the first time they'd ever done it and how did it not what didn't work and how can we fix it and so like the ex2 sets are the smaller the subsets usually like one archetype supported right as you mentioned and then like a couple of supporting things uh, specific to whatever season of the anime it's covering but they just kind of upped the alt arts as a means of saying like hey this is a supplemental product it's not a major set release uh, most decks don't care about any cards in this set at all but here's an, an, a couple nice other pieces to have for that set you know yeah i really liked plugins and how most decks could just use plugins plugins are a fantastic generic card that if you just want a tech something well there's a whole bunch of different plugins to cover whatever you're trying to tech for you need more damage here's red plugin uh you want more consistency uh or you want to try to slide through the opponent's defenses here's blue plugin you want uh evolution here's green plugin like they had to plug in for a whole bunch of different situations and that was pretty cool um, but going to the design of EX2, we kind of saw something similar in EX3 in terms of the ratios, um, the support that certain decks were getting. I think in EX3, they were going more like more hardcore into self-inclusion, where it's just like, yeah, you these decks can only be made from this set, and uh, like the cores were more defined within the set, which was both a good and a bad. Uh, the good about it is people could just buy it, put it together, and then they're good to go. The bad of it was um, the majority of them were just not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, on top of the, don't even get me started about the product errors in EX3. The All the translation well, errors was absolutely a travesty. What do you think about the anime art of EX2? I so I have a soft spot for the anime because I watch it and I still watch it like Ghost Games right now I think is really fun. Uh they have it's super light on story but it's good on the whole monster of the week formula uh while hinting at something good so maybe like their season 2 the story's really going to start ramping up uh cuz usually a season of Digimon's like 50 to like 60 episodes ish uh and we're hitting the end of where that would be for ghost games but i like the anime aesthetics um it's a good callback um because they did that with ex1 being a callback to hyper coliseum 
So I it didn't like bother me as much because that was the theme and flavor of the set. Yeah, I just I kind of thought it was lazy to be honest, just because everything has an anime screenshot associated with it, some movie, some and if it was the alt art were like action sequences and whatnot, but for like I mean the entire D Reaper line were literally just screenshots. They might as well be like NFTs of cards. But um it it just felt like they, they could have just given unique art to them, right? They have artists, they these are subsets, but don't give them subpar treatment because they're subsets. It's I'm glad it was a kind of a one off with the EX two and they had they had uh, moved away from that with the X3. Yeah. Uh, the fact that like a lot of the cards also didn't have like artist credit probably meant that it was a, pr- like it was an asset that was reused. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if that's actually true. That's just my, uh, my running theory. Whenever you don't mm-hmm. see an artist credit, it is probably just like a reused asset. Um, and EX2 definitely had a lot of that, but like at least what they were trying to do, still made the cards look good outside of D-Reapers. Because I'm looking at, like, the One Piece card game right now, and their first set is literally exactly as you said, just littered of screenshots, and the cards just look ugly. Like, the, well, I it hate reminds it. me of, like, custom-made. Like, if you've, like, been on Reddit or Facebook or something, and people post, like, custom-made Digimon cards or custom-made Yu-Gi-Oh cards, and they have to find some sort of stock image or screenshot to include as the image because no custom image has been created so someone wants to design their own Ragnalord mon so they just pull up a pick a segment of the anime that shows it they just they pause it they crop it out and they slap it on a card and they're like you know Ragnalord 16 you know whatever 1600 power and then has this ability and does this and it but it's that's all they did but with legit cards they just took a they paused the anime they they cropped out the image and they slapped it on a card yeah i mean other card games are really guilty of this too uh i know why schwartz like i know it's popular I mean, it's literally, literally the point of why schwartz is it not <laughs> well so the the point of why schwartz is uh the same point as uh union arena which is bandai's like attempt to make a why schwartz uh, where it's just IPs, like different IPs clashing, and each set is a different IP. Um, some of it is due to the IP holders and what they allow. Um, but this is coming from like, oh, we're reaching out to you to use your IP, not we already own your IP and we can do whatever we want with it. Because um, mm-hmm. I know uh, IP holders, they will put certain limitations and restrictions on it. Uh, Bandai's already faced this before with Chrono Clash. Um Godzilla could not play in competitive events against uh, Evangelion, as an example, as per Godzilla's request. Evangelion didn't care if you played with Naruto. It, like, it became a huge mess on term- in terms of uh, what they allowed. And then you look at games like uh, Force of Will, even though it's pretty much a dead card game at this point. Uh, they had a uh, Ghost in the Shell set, and literally the owners of Ghost in the Shell said, you can only use screenshots for from our anime. And the show looked ugly as sin, and the new border on that game looks ugly as sin. So it was, like, literally the worst-looking cards I've ever seen. And that's just a byproduct of the IP holders. Uh, but, yeah, like, Digimon, it, Bandai owns them. 
Um, so there wasn't really much of a reason, but at least they cleaned it up a little bit for the majority of the other cards and made it somewhat presentable. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I just, it, felt, it felt pretty lazy. Like, don't make the set if you're not going to put the effort in to me. But it played fine, D-Reapers were fine, it didn't really, besides D-Reaper but later, didn't really shake up the meta too much, but it, it was a fun set to have, and especially with the kind of like the shotgun tempo release we had in that time of the year, it felt as though it was okay that it was just okay at best, because people didn't necessarily feel compelled to overbuy it, or even buy as much as they, they would buy of another set, and you could really just get by with two boxes. Like, if you were someone who purchased set boxes or even the singles because it was potentially even a little overbought by people like myself, that was the singles themselves were pretty cheap. There weren't too many even... I think now we're starting to see some prices creep up on, like, the secrets, but that's about it. And even then, Bandai's not afraid to reprint secrets, as we see with mm -hmm. some of their uh, new spoilers, uh, which is basically just the cards we're going to be seeing in 2023. Um, but like, yeah, uh, I think that's, it, it's just a byproduct of, uh, the game. And I really wish like this goes into like Bandai controlling their release cycle. Um, they know they're going to be releasing six sets a year. They know it. There's zero reason why they need to do like, here's BT8 and then here's EX2, like one month later. There's zero reason for that when they know they could just, okay, two month, two month, two month, two month. Like, mm -hmm. we don't need this one month or three month gap. Like, people yeah. don't like that. So, I think, because like, we already kind of covered the more recent stuff recently, the last like, major point, honestly, if, even though it doesn't really feel like it's, it is, but um, it was BT9. Because like, everything else was is kind of the stuff we've talked about in the last couple weeks and we're still in the ex3 meta we like the extended bt10 meta and so the last real change outside of the current meta realistically is was bt9 and so the real uh question i guess i have in regards to bt9 was what is or potentially will be the long lasting repercussions of the x antibody mechanic that is a very hard one to say because I think like out of this year, looking at all of the sets, uh, even though BT10 was pretty much kneecapped from the get-go, um, just because of the release schedule of EX3 on top of the ban and limitation that it that affected that set, um, I don't necessarily think that set was going to be the big power creep set we all thought it was. The two big power creep sets are easily BT7. Um, and BT9, I think BT7, the damage was more temporary, even though it was harsher than BT9s, um, considering there was actually zero ability at that time to be able to play around tamers and be able to play around these types of strategies. Whereas with BT9, at least there is plays that could be made um, against uh, holding Digimon and raising, and uh, there are... Like, even though it seems like it was a big OTK format, most of the decks actually just didn't OTK. They have the potential and the ability to. Uh, most of them actually didn't. But in terms of just the sheer amount of speed and consistency X-Antibodies brings, 
and the continued use of them and as we see with uh ex or not ex um bt11 and bt12 uh i'm not entirely sure uh i want to say most of them kind of just don't need some of these old x antibody tools like looking at the beelzemon deck not getting like too deep into it but just i i took a quick glance to see what beelzemon was doing and they're still they're not even playing anything outside of the x antibody option because they kind of have to uh cool boys not being used at all um and it's more of just the option that's being used to round out mm -hmm. x antibody uh we see this with black wargreymon x as well like i think they're playing into cool boy a little bit more just because they can and they do um just because they're not actively trying to mill their deck but regardless uh it just seems like these x antibody decks are stronger just because of the extra evolution for extra cycling the when did you evolve on attack usually and just the extra power given to the effects just because the card is assuming and expecting you to have other cards with it and it's not necessarily trying to stand on its own merits while also standing on its own merits i think just like the retrospective of what x antibodies have been and where they're going they just need to have some sort of downside for being used as the base level that they are as opposed to the half step that they're intended to be if you if like you know taking black or graymon if you level into just graymon x because you don't have a regular level four graymon to digivolve into in raising there should be in a maybe like just a one cost associated with it higher or something like that just to, to really uh prevent the shenanigans where a, their worst hand is just their good hand minus additional effects as opposed to other people who draw they don't draw level four at all they just can't play their cards out at all and i think that's kind of why like hybrids kind of did as well as it did also uh just because the like the way decks were built around both of these different types of mechanics really showed the amount of like i don't want to say anti-bricking but just the ability to play out of bad hands faster than the opponent it's just like okay uh i'm blue hybrids i'm gonna play davis davis helps me find my other cards and i have a tamer on my field like that is just so much advantage for something like blue hybrids to gain because then the more davises you have means that you could easily and freely just digivolve on top of them uh to you know get your stuff going uh and you don't mm -hmm. care and x anybody like you said they're not necessarily half steps like they should be they're bases in them to themselves where if you're just missing a step uh and missing the base form you could still just digivolve if you're mm -hmm. if you're just in need of that level yeah, and we, we've seen certain decks that kind of do need to see their full line to see the level of success that the tiering traditionally warrants. Like, Alpha Bond without... You can't just go into your half-step with an Alpha Bond because the, uh, the Xs are that much more expensive and their effects don't really do anything without the base value. And then... But you do have decks like uh, Melga X, you know, and it's, again, like, return of success and continued success because while not having that Garurumon 
for the Guru X is a little annoying. Uh, it isn't super required, and as long as you have the like the level 5 and the 5X, you can still do things. Or even just the level 3s. Like, you just have yeah. two level 3s, you're still a good single, to go. As long as you have a source of protection. Like, it almost means, like, you should take the, the protection that the level 4X offers and make it explicitly, like, you can remove this card and a card that says Garubramon level 4 from its sources, making it even more of a defined window of protection than it currently stands. Uh, yeah. I also think, like, part of the thing that's making both hybrids, or was making hybrids, and what's currently making X-Antibodies uh, as successful is they just have the most instances of, I guess, like, safe play or protective play. Because, like, what was making um, Crosshearts so threatening and just the prospect of it was basically just what Hybrids was doing. I'm playing my Tamers to play my Digimon. My Digimon do something, and then that triggers the Tamers. So, like, they were feeding off of each other, but when the Digimon dies, they go underneath the Tamer and then are reusable. Um, so there was that form of protection there. Hybrids, you just slam hy uh, Tamers down on the field, and then that's it. They, they just sit there and act as extra raising areas until you're ready to hybrid. Uh, and with these X-Antibodies, they just have so much powerful protective abilities like you look at um Gururumon, battle protection you look at greymon deletion and tuck and bounce protection um like grandis doesn't really have any uh which is grandis's biggest weakness but regardless like there's still just a lot of very safe and protective play that they try to make or even if it's not safe and protective play just the sheer amount of damage that they can do when they're not safe is still just a lot higher than your average deck. And that is warping the game. Like part of the reasons why blue hybrids died um, and the big shift from EX2 to BT9 and why D Reaper suddenly was more successful was because blue hybrids wasn't farming them for free because they just have Digimon without sources on their field, thus turning blue hybrids online and blue hybrids needed Digimon on the field. Well, if everything's hiding and raising, there's nothing on the field for blue hybrids to take advantage of. So the deck was moving a lot slower because of that. Um, and even when the Digimon moved out and it was on the field, like usually that's the big push turn or combo turn to potentially deal as much damage and put you in a bad position as you possibly could be. Yeah. So ultimately, I think this year was better than last year, um, especially given that 2021 was a really a building year and while this was still definitely a building year um at least we have i think a clearer direction as far as what we would expect from 2023 i know i think on the horizon we've got we've got bt11 another core set another you know they're a singular starter deck not two starter decks uh bt12s out there and EX4. We have fully, yeah, fully spoiled EX4, and we're just working into the first re uh, uh, reprint set and seeing what new cards they're adding along with which reprints they're adding. But uh, in general, I do think there's a good direction for what we hope to expect from the next year, and I'm really looking forward to what new mechanics 
they could introduce or how they could reincorporate old mechanics because i still like when they expand upon a mechanic as opposed to just adding a new mechanic doing it for one set and then shelving it like beelzemoth yeah um but i also think like echoing that sentiment decks are lasting longer like it's crazy to think that imperial that came out at the beginning of the year or i guess technically more middle of the year is still playable even in this format is it the best Mm -hmm. deck compared to when it first came out no but it's the fact that it's still a playable deck and it still has the ability to do well is just absolutely fantastic just because people don't want to just replace their decks and during that first building year they kind of had to do that because you know they had stuff that needed to be established and now we have a lot of stuff that's already established so now we're just iterating and updating Mm -hmm. so um i I know we kind of jumped all over the place but this was really just to showcase uh our thoughts and experiences with 2022 and we'll have a more cohesive competitive uh review once nats is over and we have the full seasons of data to work through yeah i think uh just looking back at 2022 it was definitely a better year than people might have thought uh as i i made a whole little retrospective on my own personal thoughts um so like if you want more of my thoughts uh feel free to check that out um but kind of just bringing it in uh to hear a little bit in summary like the game's growing it's in a pretty good spot competitively it's fun uh definitely there's a lot more diversity than people might think or have expected um and then outside of literally the travesty of ex3's like big translation errors um i thought like all of the products were pretty solid uh bt7 and bt9 were the big power creep sets um and yeah bt10 probably shouldn't have been like strangled as much as it should have been um so that's that's kind of all of like what i was saying from that video just brought into here summarized yeah i think that's a good way to put it um that's all the time we have for today i hope you enjoyed this episode and i hope you look forward to the next one and with that we'll see you later